God, we confess today, we confess today that you are so different and unlike us. If holy means other, we need to say it three times to even start to get close. And even then, we barely scratch the surface of your greatness and your bigness and your majesty. And God, this week we have lived as if you are smaller than you are. God, we've lived as if your will for us was small, your care for us was small, your promises to us are small, your commands to us are small, and God, we we lay out before you our lives. You told us to be holy like you are holy, and we've not done that. God, you've told us to point to it, God. You've told us to point to yourself as someone different, and we've tried to make you more palatable and more like us, and yet there you stand so different. And so, God, as we enter into your presence this morning, we become recognizing our failure and our faults, but also recognizing that because you are so unlike us, you respond to our failure so unlike we do. And that your bigness and your greatness toward us um, wraps up our failures and our brokenness and our sorrow and our disappointment and our hurt and our anger and our frustration. And God, somehow you wrap that up with us even into your life. And so reveal to us today your glory and your goodness, your tenderness and your compassion, but also your greatness and your majesty, your holiness today. God, we love you and just want this to be an exercise in loving you more. So help us in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Have a seat. Um, Hey, kids are going to go back with Miss Pam now. So if you're a kid going back to Regen Rangers, that's that. So that's exciting. Get myself situated. Starting a new series this morning ahead of the season of Lent. Lent begins on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Lent is a season in the church year kind of like Advent. Only Lent is a little more of a reflection on our brokenness and our humanity and how God responds in his grace to that. What's that? Ooh, and speaking of Lent, one of the things that we're doing for that is uh, encouraging both of our campuses, we're one church in two locations, to read through a a Lent devotional. A devotional is a Christian word for a little book that you read a little bit of every day. Uh, It's by, it's collected writings of a guy named A.W. Tozer, um, who is one of handily one of the most famous preachers and writers of his time, although had a really crappy marriage, so we could talk about that at another point. But uh, uh, so we have this book by Tozer, and then what we're doing, so reading that together every day, and then there's been a word yanked out of uh, that devotional, and it's one word that we're inviting you to take a a picture of and uh, then submit that picture to my wife, who will then put it on social media, and uh, we'll see it across both of our campuses, which is really cool. So you can see staff to sign up for that after. So we got that Lent thing going on. Lent doesn't begin till Valentine's Day, but we're getting to it a little early. We're going to be looking at seven letters Jesus writes to seven churches in the book of Revelation. And But, but to really understand that well, we need to, is, am I coming in and out a lot? Let me look at my battery here. Good on the battery. I don't know, guys. Maybe it's the Cardi. Is it the Cardi party causing a problem? Um, <laughs> do Cardi parties ever cause problems? Um, uh, 
I'm also really warm, so that's fine. Let's see if that helps. So um, Jesus writes these seven letters to seven churches in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 2 and 3, but in Revelation 1, he tees all of that up. And so we're looking at Revelation 1. We're overachievers here at Regen, so we're starting Lent like 10 days early. So congratulations uh, on that. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. There's going to be some of it on the screen and we'll go from there. Revelation chapter 1. If you don't know where Revelation is, it is the last book of your Bible. So start at the end and go backwards, and you'll hit it. Revelation 1. There is no other book of the Bible. There's no other book of the Bible that has captured our culture's attention like the book of Revelation. Uh, it appears all over the place in television. It's quoted a number of times in my favorite television show, The West Wing. Uh, it is a repeated reference in the show uh, Sleepy Hollow, which was on Fox. I once had somebody tell me that they thought Sleepy Hollow would be a great Bible study on the book of Revelations. It is not that, okay? Two things wrong with that. First of all, that story is about the headless horseman. Uh, and while there are horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation, no overlap. The second thing is, impress your friends, it is not the book of Revelations. It is the book of Revelation, Okay? Singular. Don't use it plural or you'll embarrass me in public. You know what I'm saying? Um, it is the inspiration for movies like Armageddon and Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Its words have inspired novels. It's, this is where the title, The Grapes of Wrath, The Grapes of Wrath is a phrase in the book of Revelation. William Butler Yeats' poem, The Second Coming, inspired by the book of Revelation. Dante's Inferno, largely inspired by the book of Revelation. It has inspired songs by both Nirvana and Iron Maiden. Uh, yeah. Uh, the book of Revelation was then thrust into a really clear spotlight in the early 2000s with a, a series of novels by Tim LaHaye called Left Behind, the Left Behind series. Uh, the Left Behind series spun off into a movie in 2014 starring Nicolas Cage, which we can all agree makes it a truly terrible movie. Um, the only good Nicolas Cage movie is what? That's right, National Treasure, yes. Um, and yet, for all of its attention, right, for all of the attention Revelation gets, by the way, the number one book the average person in the pew wants their pastor to preach is Revelation. The number one book pastors do not want to preach is Revelation. For all of this attention, even Christians that have followed Jesus and really been serious about his word for their lifetimes know nothing about this book. I am now in my one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighth year of biblical higher education, and I know nothing about this book, which is the exact thing you want your pastor to say before we kick off an eight-week eight series in this book, but you're in good company. So now Revelation, because we don't understand it, it is left to be fodder for crazy internet people who are trying to figure out which of the last 10 presidents really was the Antichrist. Every president in my lifetime, every president or presidential candidate in my lifetime has been called the Antichrist. Um, we wonder if, because we have to give our iPhones our thumbprint, or the iPhone 10 unlocks by looking at your face, we wonder if that is the mark of the beast. And now people spend all of these hours and hours trying to use um, the book of Revelation as like a decoder ring, like from an Ovaltine box, to figure out if the eagle in Revelation 4 represents America, or if the bear in Revelation 4 represents the country of Russia. There is only one nation. Which the, book of it, which the book of Revelation is interested in. Would anybody like to guess what it is? Israel. Very good. 
So this morning, we're going to be moving out of this basic series that focused highly on skill and competency and into this series that's a little bit more about biblical knowledge. I want us to unpack what the nature of the book of Revelation is, and then we'll look at a vision that John receives of Jesus, the glorified, resurrected, risen Jesus, that is still true Jesus today, and how that might affect our living and then help us read the seven letters that we're going to look at from now until Easter. Does that make sense? Awesome. Let's look at Revelation chapter 1 together. Revelation 1, where John says, This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Spiritual bonus points for me today, people. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) The one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. Oh, wait, and some for you. He blesses all who listen to its message. Congrats. Ding, ding, ding. And obey what it says. Ooh, yes. (laughs) For the time is near. This letter is from John. This is verse 4. To the seven churches of the province of Asia. Revelation, it says, is written by John, either the beloved disciple, Jesus' best friend, who wrote John and 1, 2, and 3. John, he decided to get a little creative when he named the last book, right? Um, It could be another guy named John who was a Messianic Jew who had some influence in the early churches. It's more likely the former, John the beloved disciple, and it is written toward the end of the first century. We're talking about AD 90, 95, maybe 96. John is an old man by this point. Uh, John has been exiled to the island of Patmos, Patmos being a small island in the Mediterranean Sea. He says that in verse uh, 9, I believe. Nope. Yep, I, John, am your brother and partner in suffering. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word. John has been exiled as what is called an atheist. Now, this is surprising because he believes in Jesus, right? Under this time, at this time in Roman history and in world history, the emperor Nero is no more, which is good things for Christians because Nero used to take Christians, douse them with oil, put them up on a pole, and burn them alive to light his dinner parties. Um, And they would line the roads. This is how they, you know, no electricity, let's use Christians. Um, And so they did that. And Nero's down, now there's an emperor named Domitian. Domitian is a little bit of an egomaniac. Domitian is requiring every citizen of the Roman Empire to give an offering of incense and fealty to kneel before an image of Dea Roma. Understand that at this point in Roman history, the Roman emperor, any Roman emperor, was on equal footing with any of the other gods. In fact, after a Roman emperor died, he could be voted in by the Senate to the Pantheon. So this is what you get when you have religion by democracy. Now, Domitian is now insisting that every Roman citizen go to a temple of Dea Roma, the Roman god, to burn incense in front of probably his own image, Domitian's own image, to burn incense in front of that, to kneel and swear fealty to it. And Christians don't have anything to do with this. Christians actually refuse. And because they refuse to worship the emperor, they are considered atheists. 
Make sense? Now, John, chief of these atheists, instead of being killed, has been exiled. Now, the problem when you kill a Christian, they are martyred, and that usually energized the church. Uh, Tertullian, an early Christian writer, said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And so the Romans quickly learned that by killing Christians, they were actually making more of them. So instead of killing them, they began to exile them. So they take John, the beloved disciple, who by this point has pastored the church in Ephesus and become very influential in uh, Turkey, Asia Minor is who is where these churches are. And they've exiled him to the island of Patmos so that he can't exercise spiritual leadership anymore. But what they don't know about John is that John can still write from prison. And so John, while on the island of Patmos, receives these words of revelation, writes them in a letter, and sends them to the Christians around Turkey and then the rest of the world, and we're reading it now. Now, John, in these four verses... Revelation 1 through 4 tells us that he is writing a document with three kinds of genre. He tells us he's writing, he tells us that he's writing a letter, a prophecy, and apocalyptic literature. Somebody said to me after the last uh, the last one that every time I said apocalyptic, they kept hearing um is Honda, like that one, do you know what I mean? Like um, but so not apostolicus Honda, apocalyptic literature. Um, it's these three. The revelation is, first of all, a letter. Uh, there's seven letters in the beginning of it. It is addressed specifically to those seven churches dealing with real issues in those seven churches. The matrix of authority in any biblical text is in what the original hearers heard. The matrix of authority in the book of Revelation is not, does the eagle represent America? The the matrix of authority is in what did the people in Ephesus and Pergamum and 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 Thyatira, what did they hear in their culture and how does that speak to then us today? It is a letter written to them. You see some features of letters, not only the letters that John writes, he introduces it in verse four with something like grace and peace to you on behalf of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a common way of introducing letters. The reason we need to start with this is because you're comfortable if you're reading scripture, most of us, in, in Ephesians or Galatians or Romans or 1 Corinthians, we're on equal footing now. So you actually know more about this than you think you do. This is a letter. It is a letter. In fact, we'll talk about next week or the week after how there's also an overlap in the seven letters between uh, with, with Roman edicts that the emperor would write these letters to cities and that the letters that Jesus is kind of penning through John look a lot like those two. So first of all, Revelation is a letter. It is a letter to seven churches. It is also a prophecy, John says. He says, these are, this is, these are words of prophecy, which means that John views himself in the tradition and in the line of the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea, Nahum, Micah, Jonah. Uh, he, he sees himself carrying out a work of prophecy. Well, what does prophecy do? It, it speaks to God's people to remain holy in the midst of a culture that is against their values. And, it is a, and prophetic words also usually call out and critique the power structure of that time. And so in that sense, the book of Revelation is a prophetic word, just like the words of Isaiah or Ezekiel, Jeremiah, any of these guys, that, that calls God's people and the churches in Asia and of all time now to be faithful to the Lord while also critiquing the government, the, 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 rule, the rule of power in our society. So everybody, again, tends to use America and think America is in the book of Revelation. In fact, America would be heavily critiqued by the book of Revelation. 
because it is speaking to power. So it is, it is a letter, it is a prophecy, and it is an apocalypt, a work of apocalyptic literature, a work of Apostolic Honda. Um, see, I shouldn't have said that because now it's just in my head. Do you know what I mean? So what is apocalyptic literature? Well, apocalyptic literature is actually a very common style of literature at this time in Jewish history. In fact, there are tones of apocalyptic literature in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Daniel, and in the book of Zechariah, as well as parts of Isaiah and Amos. Uh, that, and, and apocalyptic literature does this thing to use uh, vivid imagery, vivid imagery to reveal God's perspective on our circumstances. It is unveiling God's perspective on our circumstances. In fact, when John uses the word revelation, he uses the word apocalypsis. The word apocalypsis simply means unveiling or uncovering. If you get a box of shoes, you take the cover off, you just apocalypsist that. Okay? If you go, if you go to the theater and, and the curtain pulls apart, it just apocalypsist. Okay? It just parted. It is an unveiler and uncovering. And, and apocalyptic literature uses especially Old Testament prophetic imagery to reveal present circumstances and God's perspective on them. Now, here's what this means. In the book of Revelation, there are all of these really wild images of dragons and bulls and trumpets and angels and, and demons and, and all of this vivid imagery. And, and, it, and almost every single time that the book of Revelation is talking, it is quoting the Old Testament. And that's why John wrote it the way he wrote it. He uses all this apocalyptic imagery because the Romans who are reading his mail are going to send this letter onto these churches like he's a crazy person. But what he doesn't know is that every person in those churches is so seeped and well-versed in the Old Testament that every single one of these images, they would go back, look up, and understand what he was saying to them. If the book of Revelation is unfamiliar to us as a church, we are in the minority, I want you to understand that. The book of Revelation was overwhelmingly and super easily accessible to the churches to whom it was written. They understood, they knew all of these images. It, it, it clicked in their minds. It's that we are so far removed from that culture that we need to do some extra legwork or pay our pastor to do some extra legwork to make those connections for us. And your pastor really is just reading smarter people than him. This apocalyptic literature is not... A see, if it's coded, if there is a code to revelation, it is not who gets to be America, who is the Antichrist, and what is the mark of the beast. The code is, let's figure out what Old Testament text John is referencing to make his point. And, and in this vision that John receives, almost everything is connected to the Old Testament. But what is it about? The ultimate message of revelation is that things are not as they seem. Hear me on this. This is where all the scholarly stuff gets important. The message of revelation is that things are not as they seem. These churches in revelation are facing persecution. Sexual sin has overtaken them. Um, their idolatry, any number of problems have befallen this church. And in all of these cases, God wants to get their eyes off of their circumstances to unveil, to uncover, to reveal what Jesus is doing in, with, and under those very circumstances. He's trying to show us Jesus's place in the midst of our circumstances as a church and, our, and the circumstances of your life. 
so that whatever it is that you are walking through right now, good or bad, things are not as they seem. The hardship, things are not as they seem. The good things, they are not as they seem. There is a deeper action of God in, with, and under our circumstances that John wants to reveal in this text, that John wants to help us see. Paul writes in in one of the letters to the Corinthians, and I think also in Colossians, he says, so we do not fix our eyes on what is seen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He's trying to get us to look at the eternal nature of our ordinary lives. It's really actually quite cool. So let's look at what John wants to reveal starting in verse 9. I, John, I am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. And on the Lord's day, that's Sunday, I was worshiping in the spirit and suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book, write in a book everything that you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Almost all of these cities still stand in modern Turkey. They just have different names. So we'll talk about that as we go through. Notice that he says he's writing these to seven churches. Seven for John in the book of Revelation is both a literal and figurative number. It is literally, this, these letters are written to seven, and it's hard to use the word literally anymore because in casual conversations, we actually use the word literally to mean figuratively. There were literally 70,000 people there. Okay, there were like eight, so obviously you're lying. So what J- John is writing to actual, like seven actual churches that existed in their time that just happened in number seven, seven influential churches in Turkey. He's writing to seven literal churches at the same time, because seven is a symbolic number of perfection. Jesus says, how many times, when somebody says to Jesus, how many times should I forgive my brother? Jesus says 70 times 70, seven times 70, which is in other words, to infinity and beyond. It's a perfect number times a perfect number. He's writing to In writing to seven literal churches, he's writing to every church everywhere across all time. In other words, each of these seven letters are written to us and to you and me, or at least for us and for you and me. If they were written to these seven churches, they they are now for us. He's writing to these seven. And then he says in verse 12, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw, okay, John is going to use the word I saw 40 times in in, in this text. 40 times in the book of Revelation, he's going to say, I saw. John is not seeing what he sees with the naked eye because no one can look on the Lord and live and he's about to look on the Lord. He is seeing in a vision, which doesn't mean that it's less real than reality. I would argue that a vision is more real than reality as we know it. It's an inbreaking of the kingdom. So what does he see? I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire, and his feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars In his right hand, a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. This is your intro to apocalyptic literature right here. 
vivid, wild imagery. And if you could double click on any of these phrases, there is one, often two, and in some cases three or four Old Testament references to almost every word in these little verses. And I tried to make a chart and the words got too small. So we're just going to have a sampling platter of what John's trying to kind of tell us about Jesus. Because in, in Revelation 1, we meet a Jesus beyond our wildest imaginations. This is Jesus, post-resurrection, ascended into heaven, glorified, risen, alive Jesus that John sees, who is operating right now, and who is wildly far and above our imaginations and certainly not captured by that picture. Right? There's no sword coming out of his mouth. And John is using the word like. It was like this, it was like that, because John is trying to use with human language what he can barely comprehend. This Jesus who is far more powerful and majestic and authoritative and strong than we would ever, ever possibly imagine. And John sees this Jesus whose feet, it says, are made of bronze that had been refined in a furnace. This is a hearkening back to a a vision that Daniel gets in the book of Daniel. And these feet of polished bronze are strong and secure. They are not crumbling or cracking. Jesus walks into our lives and into our circumstances, powerful and secure and in control and sure-footed. John says his eyes were like flames of fire, which represents that Jesus sees all the way through you, piercing through flesh and bone and marrow to the very motives of your heart. John says he is like the son of man. The son of man is a phrase from the book of Daniel that refers to the eternal living one. And and of the son of man, it says that the son of man in Daniel 7, that the son of man is given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. This is who, this is who John is seeing, the one whose rule will never end, who, whose rule is eternal, whose kingdom cannot be destroyed, who holds in his hands the seven stars of authority and honor and sovereignty. His voice, John says, thunders like many waters, just like the book of Ezekiel says that the Lord's coming was like the rushing of many waters. There, John sits writing this letter and what sound is in the background but the crashing waves on the beach of this small island of Patmos and when you walk along the ocean what is the only thing that you can hear the waves it doesn't drown you out or smush you down it makes you feel peaceful and that is the voice of Jesus loud like an ocean peaceful like waves on the beach and when he speaks And when he speaks with this voice that drowns out all other voices, when he speaks, he speaks not with a tongue, but with a sword that comes from his mouth. Isaiah chapter 49 said that he made my words to be as sharp as a sword. The words of Jesus in your life and mine cut. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through bone and marrow to to our very hearts. I mean, this is Jesus, but the sword that he carries in his hand isn't like a long sword, like a knight would use. It is a small dagger that is tongue-shaped so that when Jesus speaks, he gets up close. He closes the distance because he knows. He knows. 
And when he gets close on his feet of bronze, so secure and strong, and, and his white robe blinding everything, and his hair bright white, which represents his wisdom and, and his eternality, that he is eternal, John says even all of that brightness is outshone by the brightness of Jesus' face, which John says shines like the sun. Now, when Moses, in the book of Exodus, climbed up the mountain of the Lord to get the law, he came back down, and his face, the text says, shone with the glory of the Lord. It was like a flashlight, and everybody's like, Moses, I have retina that you're burning. Let's put a veil on that. And so Moses puts on a veil to speak to the people, and yet, like, it's glowing around them. It is brighter than that. It is the Lord's face shining, just like we pray in Numbers chapter 26, chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. See, when he steps in close with this tongue of his that is a sword with a voice that is louder than any other voice. He does not come angry. He does not come in wrath. He does not come in disappointment. He does not come in frustration. Instead, his face shines on us with affection. His face shines on us with grace. His face shines on us with peace. And when this Jesus comes with this with his voice thundering like mighty waters and his eyes flashing like fire, seeing everything about us with perfect clarity. Across his chest is a sash of victory and accomplishment and championing over death and the grave. And this Jesus is greater and bigger and so unlike anything that we could imagine. He is wild and free and strong and powerful. He is authoritative and bright. And he challenges us and invites us He challenges us and invites us to see this Jesus glorified and resurrected behind every little circumstance of our life, just like this, behind every little circumstance of our life, so that that when we walk into the doctor's office and we hear cancer and miscarriage and tumor and infertility and depression and anxiety, Jesus does not walk in on crumbling feet. Jesus isn't like an elephant on an ice rink. Jesus is safe and secure and steady. This Jesus, his eyes are bright like fire and he has clear judgment and understanding. He is in your midst when you told the lie and when you hid the sin and when you refused to own up to your mistakes. It's this Jesus whose hair is white of eternal wisdom and eternal nature. He was in your midst when the chaos of life overwhelmed you. It is this Jesus whose voice is like that of many waters, but who, whose voice we drown out, whose voice we drown out by turning up the volume on good things that distract us with TV and Netflix and money and sex and porn and friends and endless talking heads. This Jesus' voice louder than any waterfall vying for our attention that we just can't mute hard enough and fast enough. It is this Jesus, guys, that walks into our church every Sunday. It is this Jesus who walks into our church every Sunday, who is in our presence today. You see, when John has this vision of Jesus, when John has this vision of Jesus, he sees him standing in the middle of the lampstands. And in verse 20, Jesus lets him know that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. See, Jesus isn't looking down from above or looking over from afar. Jesus walks in the midst 
of our church, the churches that John addresses in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is in their midst. Jesus is in our midst every Sunday when we walk into this place. It's not a, it's not a symbol. It's not a code. It's that the Jesus of power and authority is right here in this room. And when John looks at him, John falls to his feet as if dead. It's the universal thing that happens when people see God in scripture. Moses, Moses goes out to the far side of the desert and sees a bush that will not be consumed and he falls on his face. Paul, walking on the road to Damascus in the New Testament, meets the resurrected Jesus, falls to his face. Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord, is called into the Lord's temple, and his first words are not, hey, Jesus, I have all these questions for you. His first words are not, hey, Jesus, it's so nice to see you. His first words are, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And we, guys, we walk into church so triflingly and casually, and on one level, that's okay, but on the other hand, let's not forget that we are dealing with a Jesus that when John sees him, he falls at his feet as if dead. And here we are trifling in, 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 in what, here's what you will measure church today by. How interesting Kyle was and how much you liked the music. And yet behind all of that is this Jesus with white hair and a, and a shining face who is entirely other. And this Jesus that John saw on the Lord's day is the Jesus who is here in our midst and, and I don't want to shame us. I don't want to guilt us. I don't want to rob the authenticity that comes in our culture. But we can't be authentic without the holiness of God. Authenticity without the holiness of God is an idol. Authenticity without the holiness of God is an idol. Authenticity, which allows me, which allows me, which, which, which puts me, the, if you want authenticity that lets me just watch you live your life, and not really ever challenge, or not ever really raise the bar, that is not Christianity, that is not the way of Jesus, go join the rotary. But if we want to be in the presence of an authentically holy God who is an entirely unlike us, that's what this place is for. And hear me on this, it's not just that he's holy and he's pissed and he's coming for us, because when John falls to his feet as if dead, Jesus reaches out his hand and puts it on John's shoulder. Now that's holiness. I fell to my feet, John says, as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me. The right hand in scripture is the hand of authority and power. And he lays it on John's shoulder and he says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. In the holiness of God is tenderness. In the majesty of the Lord is compassion. In the greatness of God is an overwhelming and terrible kindness. Who sees our flaws and our brokenness and our mistakes as we tremble on the ground in front of him. And yet whose hand reaches out and puts it on the shoulder. Talking about invitation and challenge. We don't have these categories for Jesus. And because we don't have these categories for Jesus, we don't have them for worship and we don't have them for discipleship. Because we don't have these categories for for Jesus, we turn worship into something that's about us and about our preferences and what we like and what we don't like. 
and because we don't have them for discipleship, we allow sin and apathy, judgmentalism, to just kind of run wild in our hearts unchecked. But what is happening here is that John is giving us a revelation. He is unveiling and uncovering a Jesus as Jesus really is. He is unveiling and uncovering things that they really are, that this Jesus of bronze feet and white hair and bright face looks at us and sees our whole story, every little bit about us, what hurts, what doesn't, what we're proud of, what we're not. And he wants it and he wants to wrap it up into himself and invite and challenge and cause some things to thrive and rip other things out like weeds. And so what John is unveiling is a couple things. Is one, when we come together in worship on Sunday morning, yeah, it's to reconnect and see one each other and enjoy one another in love. But it's also about uncovering and unveiling and revealing the goodness and grace and power and majesty of the God who is in our midst every Sunday morning. That's what it's about. It's not checking a box. It's not joining community. All those things are the side benefits. When you sign on the dotted line, you're signing to follow after the way of this Jesus. Discipleship, following Jesus being a Christian, is about figuring out the ways that God is unveiling and revealing his kingdom and himself in the midst of our circumstances, hearing his voice and doing what he says. But ultimately, here is what John wants to reveal. Here's what John is trying to reveal in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, John is not trying to let us know who the Antichrist is going to be in the 2020 election. He is not trying to warn you against giving your thumbprint to the government because it's the mark of the beast. He's not trying to let you figure, help you figure out what this symbol means or that. What, what John is trying to... Un- Here's why John doesn't care about those things, because that's not what we need we don't, we don't need to know who the Antichrist is because believe me, when, we, when they show up, we will know who they are. What John is trying to unveil to us is the most important thing is that in the presence of this holy and overwhelming Jesus who is in our midst today, we do not need to be afraid. What John is trying to unveil to us is in the midst of the crap that you are walking through right now, you do not have to be afraid. I'm not saying don't be afraid, you jerk, get yourself together. I'm saying you do not have to be afraid, different things. I'm saying in the disappointment and the stuckness and and the frustration and the sorrow and the rejection and the shame and the failure and the waiting, Jesus is saying through John, do not be afraid. He's saying, you don't need to worry about any of these other things because here I am in the midst of every circumstance with my feet secure and my voice loud and my my hair is white because I know exactly what to do in every single situation. John is trying to unveil a Jesus so powerful and mighty that we don't ever have to be afraid again because he has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. What else is there to fear? This is why we need worship. We need an hour out of our week to refocus around this unveiling Jesus who is breaking into our everyday lives. We need to see this Jesus breaking into the midst of our circumstances. We can hear his voice and do what we say and do it without fear, without fear. Listen, John doesn't have a secret message any more than Ruth or Ephesians or the Sermon on the Mount 
or First Kings has a secret message. We, we've lost the forest from the trees. See, the only message that John wants to reveal to us this morning is that we do not need to be afraid. It is the same message that scripture has been saying over and over and over again. It is the message that the psalmist spoke in Psalm 73, where the Lord says, where, 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 where the psalmist says to the Lord, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. He sees this Jesus reaches out with this hand and he leads us out of our sin and he holds our hand as we walk in to the doctor's office and he puts our hand on our shoulder in the midst of the disappointment and the discouragement and he walks with us. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Man, God, we've just, this is, this is who we need is you. And so God, I pray today that you would get our attention in the midst of our waiting and disappointment in the midst of shame and our anxiety, in the midst of our anger and frustration, in the, in the midst of wondering if you're cruel or wondering why you're giving everybody else what we want. God, in the midst of our questions, why can't I just be happy? God, in the midst of our questions, why can't it just be different? There's you in the midst of it, walking in the midst into the doctor's office, into the, into, walking with us into our bedroom where there's just one person and not two. With us as we parent, with us as we grandparent, with us as our marriage is questionable, as we're, with us as we're waiting for the right person, with us as we're waiting to be healed for the recovery, for the freedom, God, waiting with us. And in the midst of it, there you are. And Jesus, you, you're the one we need. God, I pray for our church that we would walk with one another in ways that give honor to and embody your holiness and your tenderness. God, I pray that we would point one another to a big 3D Jesus who is greater than our imaginations. And that today, Father, you would interrupt us with your love and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this story in the book of Luke, speaking of seeing God in the midst of everything, of unveiling circumstances. There's this story in the book of Luke where two guys are walking with a stranger down the road and this stranger is telling them all about scripture. They don't know who this guy is. They're leaving Jerusalem because Jesus was just crucified and now they feel like losers. So they're, they're walking with this stranger who's talking to them about scripture and they sit down to have dinner with this guy and the guy takes the bread off the table and he breaks it. 
And as he breaks it, these two guys realize that the stranger they were walking with was no stranger, it was Jesus. In the breaking of the bread, there was an apocalypsis. And the breaking of the bread, there was a revelation. There was a revelation of who Jesus is, this Jesus they didn't see in our midst. That's why we come to this table every week because we believe in the breaking of this bread. We believe that in the tasting of this cup, we believe that we are given fresh eyes to see Jesus in the midst of our circumstances. We're given fresh eyes to be invited and challenged to experience more of him and more of his good news. We come to this table because we need to be reminded that grace is given, not taken, and that at any moment he might come breaking in, quite frankly, like the Kool-Aid man in those commercials. with something perhaps a lot more compelling than, oh yeah. (laughs) Pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup, that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ, that in the eating and drinking of them, you might come breaking into our reality with your love and your kindness and your holiness, Jesus. Amen. The table is open. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him, even those who who pierced him. And all nations of the world will mourn for him. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come the Almighty One. Church, may you walk in the power and in the grace and in the love of the one who loved you. And uh, we'll see you tonight at Super Feast or next week. Peace.